If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew. We'll look at chapter 15, verses 21 through 39. Or the text is right there on the next page of the bulletin. We're going to look at a pretty big chunk of Matthew 15 uh, this morning. Partly, that is because I really wanted to finish the chapter before I go on my sabbatical. Uh, Mostly, it's because these few paragraphs uh, really share a larger theme that hopefully we will see as we look at them together. Uh, These are all some of the things that happened when Jesus withdrew from Jewish lands and went into uh, visited uh, Gentile country. And these accounts connect the metaphor of bread and breadcrumbs with the compassionate healing and salvation of the nations. Uh, So these paragraphs help us to understand God's love for the whole world, including but not limited to his love for you in ways that should always be a pleasant surprise to us. So let's talk about that. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, make your love glorious to us as it is revealed here in your Son, in this word about him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate 
and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, it's significant here that Jesus is uh, not in Jewish land, but is visiting Gentile country. And if we don't understand the dynamics between Israel, the Jews, and other nations, which are generally called the Gentiles, that word Gentile and nation, it's translating the same word. Um, If we don't understand the dynamics between them, then we're not going to understand what's going on in this section. So let's remember, Matthew wrote his gospel primarily for a Jewish audience, and this is after the Jews had already rejected their Messiah, the Christ. Matthew is writing to appeal to them to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the true Messiah, the one sent by God for the salvation of his people, Israel, and not only for them, not only for the Jews, but for the whole world. For many centuries, God had focused his attention on the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So in a sense, God had been exclusively focused on Israel. Yahweh, the one true God, was at work in and through Israel in a way that he was not at work in and through other nations. And if you were outside Israel, if you were a Gentile from some other nation, and you wanted to come into a saving relationship with Yahweh, then you had to come in. You had to become one of his people. You had to join his people. You had to forsake your old people and your old nation and join Israel in significant ways. So there was a strong distinction between Jews and Gentiles. There was a sharp demarcation between Jews and Gentiles. The Gentiles were unclean. We talked about cleanness a lot last week, and this passage really flows out of that conversation. Uh, The the Gentiles, the nations, they were unclean. They're common. They're run-of-the-mill sinners who are outside of fellowship with God, and they could become clean and holy and set apart for life with God only by joining the people who are set apart, the holy people, Israel, whom God had set apart for himself. But that rarely ever happened. You, you read of that pretty infrequently in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, where you get Gentiles coming in and joining and, uh, and benefiting from the relationship that Israel has with Yahweh. It rarely ever happened. Generally, there's only enmity between Israel and the other nations. That's what you see on a large scale, is that Egypt, you know, for example, Egypt oppressed them for centuries. Uh, The peoples of the land of Canaan warred with them for centuries. The nations of Assyria and Babylon came in and invaded them and took them captive and so on. This is the kind of relationship that the Jews have with the Gentiles. It's one of conflict and war. So throughout all the conflict... with the other nations, God was always at work among his people. And the Jews retained a a strong identity as the people of Yahweh because he paid them special attention. But they began to take this special attention the wrong way. Rather than realize 
that God loved them entirely because of his grace. Not because of anything special or significant about them, but because he loves them and he's gracious to them. They came to think instead that God loved them because they were so lovable. And they took his personal attention as confirmation of their own awesomeness. And therefore, they took his special attention as license to despise and condemn the Gentiles, the other nations, who were obviously unclean and unworthy of God's attention, outside of what God was doing. Right? So they'd forgotten that, apart from the grace of God setting them apart, they were just Gentiles. They were just another common, unclean nation themselves. In the beginning, when God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day, he created humanity, all of humanity, in his image for a relationship of sonship, to live with God as father and son, to inherit the world that God had made. <clears throat> he created all humanity. For this special relationship and all humanity sinned and all humanity fell short of the glory of God, fell from the glory of God. And God made promises to redeem and restore all humanity before there was anything like the Jewish nation, the Israel nation, the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and the way that God went about restoring all humanity was by taking one family that was just like all the other families of the earth by taking one nation that was just like all the other nations to work in and through that particular family, that nation in order to bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. And that is the substance of the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who are the fathers of the faith, the patriarchs of the house of Israel. So, for example, uh, in Genesis 12, I mean, we get this, this kind of promise repeated throughout uh, the middle of Genesis as God is talking to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here he says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promised to extend the blessing of a relationship with him, the blessing of salvation to all peoples. In his grace, God chose to relate to all of these peoples, all the nations, all the Gentiles, through the nation of Israel. It was certainly a privileged position that they enjoyed, but it was a privilege granted by his grace. It was not a privilege they deserved. Those promises to bless Israel in order to bless all nations, those gracious promises should have shaped the Jews in their understanding of their foundations as a people and their identity as a people, their purpose as a people. And it should have shaped also their hopes and expectations for their Messiah their Savior. As Tim read from our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 49, God tells his servant, God tells the Messiah, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back, bring back the preserved of Israel. 
I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> but, um, but Israel became exclusive in a way that God had not intended. They, they monopolized their relationship with God. They thought their special status reflected something special, something great about them, rather than reflecting something great about God's grace to them and to others. They had something of a nationalistic self-righteousness, and rather than seeing themselves in the other nations, because really, in so many ways, they're just like the other nations, rather than seeing themselves in the other nations, they came to look down on the other nations with disdain. They considered the Gentiles as subhuman, like beasts. They called them dogs. So, uh, because God had chosen and promised to work through Israel, When the Son of God came into the world, he came first to the people of Israel through whom God had been working. The Messiah came to the Jews for the Jews as a Jew. He didn't come to the Jews because everyone else was dogs and only they were good. He came to the people who had been set apart by God's grace. He came as the Holy One the one who is set apart and the one who sets apart. Jesus is Israel. Israel as it should have been. The one representative through whom God relates to all peoples. Through whom God blesses all peoples. That's Jesus. He's the true Israel. And when he came to his people, his own people did not receive him. He encountered the entitlement, the nationalistic self-righteousness of the Jews, and so he went away from there and withdrew to the north of Israel, to the, to the district of Tyre and Sidon. That's where we find ourselves in this passage. This is not a final abandonment of the people of Israel. It's part of Jesus' ministry to them, to reorient his people, to remind them of God's international intentions. They think themselves the only true children of God. And they call the Gentiles dogs. Well, you can see from this whole section that Jesus has compassion on these Gentiles. He cares for people from every family and tribe and tongue and nation. So his first interaction with this Canaanite woman needs a bit of explanation. It might seem like he is being short with her or dismissive or cruel, but he is definitely not. So she knows something about him. She's heard about him. She calls him Lord. She calls him Son of David. This is the kind of language that a good person from the house of Israel would use of their Savior and their King. She uh, seems to be adopting Israel's Messiah as her own Savior, the very thing that she should do if she wants to know the the true God, if she wants to glorify the true God of Israel. She begs Jesus for help for her daughter, who has a demon. Jesus has delivered many people from demons before, but so far, the focus of his ministry has really been among the Jews. It's something of a surprise that Someone like this Canaanite. This woman's a Canaanite. That's a member of one of Israel's most ancient 
and bitter national enemies. It's something of a surprise that someone like her would, that she would ask Jesus for help, that she would set her hope on him, and that she would be so persistent about it. And at first, Jesus responds with silence, which we are tempted to interpret as dismissiveness on his part, like he's ignoring her. Uh, That's not it. Instead, I think we should interpret it as an invitation to further engagement. He's leaving her in a place where her desperation for him grows all the more. He's giving her an opportunity to persevere in her petition, in her prayer. He is purposely bringing out her faith. That's a pretty ordinary way for God to work. We get this all the time. We need. We ask. We beg. We seek. We knock. And we don't get a response right away. That does not mean that God is hostile to us. That does not mean that God is ignoring us. That does not mean God is absent. His silence can expose our faith, can expose our faithfulness. How do we respond to his silence? By giving up and walking away from him, saying, it's no good trying to come to you for help. I'm out. Or by drawing closer and insisting on his attention. Do we wrestle with him like the patriarch? The sinner, Jacob, wrestled with God, refusing to quit until God blessed him. That impertinent sinner, an example for us. Do we wrestle like this Canaanite woman wrestled? Jesus is willing for us to wrestle with him. His presence confirms it. Otherwise, why even show up? Jesus came into this world for a wrestling match with you. And even his silence invites our wrestling. His disciples are irritated by the woman. And they're frustrated enough that they beg Jesus to send her away. But Jesus answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's a really strange way to respond to the request to send the woman away. It is a non sequitur. that It does not follow. The disciples ask Jesus to send the woman away. We expect a response like, okay, or no, or don't tell me what to do, <laughs> right? This is... But instead, what Jesus says gets everyone thinking about the Messiah's mission. He does not explicitly refuse to help her. He doesn't say, no, unclean Gentile woman, go away from me. He's inviting a response from her again. He's teasing her faith out into the open because, yes, God's focus has been on the house of Israel. Why? For the sake of the whole world from the beginning. She doesn't give up. She knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And Jesus responds again in a way, this is maybe the strongest way, 
Uh, We might interpret as him trying to dismiss her, trying to reject her. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Is he being cruel? Is he insulting and belittling her? Does Jesus reject her, this Canaanite woman? Does God despise and condemn the Gentiles? Does he despise and condemn the nations? No. I think it might help if we could um, hear or imagine the tone of his words. Uh, But we can extrapolate from what we know about Jesus for sure, and, uh, and the situation that he's in. Jesus definitely has compassion on people, even on Gentiles like this woman. In a few verses, that'll be made explicit as he heals and provides for many people in these Gentile places that he visits. He himself will say, I have compassion on these people. Jesus does not see this woman as a dog. If we hear him say it, that there's no punctuation <laughs> In the original Greek New Testament, if we could hear him say it with sort of air quotes, if we could hear him say it with some ironic humor, it ties everything together. He's saying, but it isn't right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs, right? He is poking fun at the self-righteous Jews who would call Gentiles dogs. He does not call Gentiles dogs. He's using their language. They would say he should not help this woman. Because that's what a focus on the house of Israel means. They would say God only pays attention to Israel, to the exclusion of all other people. Again, what he says is further invitation for her to continue to engage, to wrestle. Which she does. She takes his metaphor in stride and runs with it. Yes, Lord. And even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She doesn't doesn't pretend to deserve his help. She doesn't argue, uh, well, why am I a dog? Why can't I be considered a child? Where's my dignity? Where's my worth in this analogy? She's humble. And yet she wrestles with Jesus. And that's a sign of her great faith. The disciples are little faiths. We've seen that in Matthew's gospel. Hers is great. Faith is not thinking that you're worthless and groveling like a dog. Nor is faith in thinking that you're worthwhile, deserving and demanding dignity. Faith is believing that Jesus is a worthy Lord. Believing that he is the one who judges you, that he is the one who blesses you, that he is the one who helps you. And faith is wrestling with him. So this this bread and crumbs here is a metaphor for God's life-giving, life-sustaining, nourishing help, saving grace. Faith is believing that the crumbs from his table would be more than enough for you, for your life, for your salvation. Yes, God has focused his attention on the people of Israel. The bread of life has been given to them, first of all peoples. But God's grace is so abundant that surely there's crumbs. Surely there's leftovers that would be more than enough for the life of the whole world. 
So hopefully by now you know that Jesus is worthy of this kind of faith. Jesus answers her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus is very pleased that this woman believes such things about him. Which reveals something of his own goodwill and his intentions. Something that's revealed further as he continues his travels throughout Gentile country. It says in verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. So when Mark gives his account of this in his gospel in Mark 7, you can read about there. He says, Jesus was in the region of the Decapolis, the the ten cities which are non-Jewish cities. uh, The non-Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, still in Gentile country. So these healings uh, that we find in this little second paragraph and the feeding of the 4,000, which we find in this final paragraph, this third large one, uh, are still taking place out, away from Israel, out among the nations. Jesus does the exact same things he's been doing among the Jews. He extends the same care. He exercises the same compassionate power. It's the crumbs from the table, so to speak, which are just as life-giving, life-sustaining, and nourishing as the bread which was given to the children. In fact, uh, the same metaphor is, is being used here. It's being turned into this symbolic, miraculous sign in the feeding of the 4,000, bread and crumbs. Uh, it's very similar to the earlier event which we read about a few weeks ago in Matthew 14, the feeding of the 5,000, right? So uh, a large crowd follows Jesus in both cases. There's not enough food for everyone who is hungry. Jesus took some bread and some fish. He made it enough for everyone, more than enough, much more than enough for everyone. And they took up many baskets of crumbs, leftover fragments, right? Why Matthew and Mark both record both of these events, both these feedings. Why do that if they're so similar? We got it the first time. Jesus can feed everyone. It's, it's crazy. It's a great power of his. Why do we need this account of this second demonstration? It's because this one happens among the Gentiles. This one happens out in the nations. In the first feeding... The disciples brought up the need of the Jewish crowd to eat. In this one, Jesus says, I have compassion on these Gentiles, and I want to feed them. And he has the same compassion toward the Gentiles that he did toward the Jews. If anything, his compassion is even more evident because he takes the initiative here. And so his disciples respond, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? They had a profoundly memorable experience just a short time ago when Jesus fed a larger crowd with less food to begin with. But that crowd had been Jewish. It does not compute for them that Jesus would want to do the same thing here. It seems like they're resisting applying the same grace of God in this situation because these people 
are just the rest of the nations. We assume we're not going to feed them too, are we? So we already know that Jesus can feed crowds miraculously. This miracle is recorded so that we can know explicitly Jesus is not limiting his attention. He is not limiting his saving work. He is not limiting his superabundant grace only to the house of Israel. Remember from the first feeding that the life-giving, life-sustaining nourishment that we truly need and that Jesus supplies comes from his relationship to God, the relationship of the Son to the Father. Just like with the first feeding, the first thing Jesus does is he prays. He gives thanks. He's, He's living this out in relationship with the Father. This is part of his relationship with the Father as the Son. And out of this comes the bread for the life of the nations. Just like with the first feeding, a symbolic number of baskets of leftover fragments, crumbs, is taken up. In the first feeding, it's 12 baskets. 12 baskets remind us of the 12 tribes of Israel, the fullness of God's chosen people. In this feeding, it's seven baskets. And if there's any number more significant than 12 in the Bible, it's the number seven. Seven. Perfect. The original number of perfection. The number of the fullness of creation. Remember, long before God had narrowed down his focus to work with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel, there were just all the nations. Adam and Eve were the first of these. Adam and Eve were the first Gentiles. They're the source of all the nations. The number seven points all the way back to God's original creation, to God's perfect plan and purpose for the whole world. God's saving compassion, God's gracious power in Christ is intended to redeem and restore all the world. So the fact that seven loaves of bread became seven whole baskets of crumbs means that God's gracious salvation grows exponentially as his people extend it to more and more people. We think in finite terms, that's why this seems impossible to us. There's only so much bread to go around. There's only so much grace. There's only so much special divine attention to share among us, for even a small number of people to get enough. That is not how it works in God's economy. There is much more at the end than there was at the beginning. God might have started by calling one man out of the nations, Abraham. But his blessing turned that one man into a nation, into many nations, which became a blessing to all nations. It's not like there's only one loaf of bread to go around for thousands of people, and if you're lucky, you might get a microscopic crumb. That's not how it's working. Even the crumbs become more abundant and more filling and more satisfying as they're distributed to yet more and more others. 
It's not like God only has enough attention and care for one nation. In Christ, his attention and care superabound and overflow to all the nations, to all kinds of misfits and weirdos and sinners. Maybe you feel like you don't qualify for Jesus' attention, for God's help, for, for God's salvation. The good news is that Jesus has plentiful attention, plentiful help, plentiful redemption, and salvation, more than enough for you, whoever you are, no matter who you are, whatever nation you come from, your background, whatever, he welcomes you into his kingdom, even into his very family, where you belong, now and forever, you belong, truly, in spite of yourself, even though you don't qualify. You belong in God's household, you are his child, because of his grace alone. Never forget that. Dwell on that. Meditate on it. Think about what that means. Work out the ramifications of it for your relationship with God and and with other people. You belong in God's household. You are his child because of his grace alone. Jesus pays attention to you because of who he is. Not because of who you are. Maybe you feel like you do qualify for Jesus' attention. But that maybe other people don't. That it makes sense for God to pay special attention to you because you're awesome. But that other people are despicable and worthy of uh, condemnation. Maybe, like the house of Israel, you feel worthy of God's help because you come from the right family, the right tribe, the right nation. Because you try really hard and you think yourself good enough. If you think this, then you should know that is not how God works. If you feel like that about yourself, those feelings don't come from God. He blesses people who do not deserve it. He blesses regular old sinners. The only kind of person there is in this world, he blesses sinners to be a blessing to other sinners. He promised to bless Israel in order to bless all the nations through them, through their Messiah, through the Lord Jesus. And when the Lord Jesus came into the world, he taught his people, his disciples, to participate in what he was doing. He told his disciples, I have compassion on these people. I want to feed them. You're going to feed them. I'll make it possible for you to feed these people. I will bless you to make you a blessing to others so that they'll know my grace, so that my grace will sustain them and keep them alive. As his people, we are blessed with the privilege of distributing crumbs from his table to others, the magnificent crumbs of his own relationship with the Father for the life of the world. It isn't people who think themselves either worthless or worthwhile who will bless other people with these glorious crumbs. It is people who think that Jesus is a worthy Lord, Sinner, sinners who know themselves beloved of God by his grace alone, who will bless other sinners by sharing the life and the love of the Lord Jesus. You should always be 
pleasantly surprised by God's love for the whole world. That love that graciously includes but is not limited to you. You should be surprised that his love would include someone like you. And you should be pleased that his love would also include other sinners like you. That you would be conscripted to participate in extending that love to all. The Holy One came into the world in order to see himself in the nations. To bless us with the blessing that he has received from God. Can you see yourself in other sinners? To bless them in the love of Christ. Does your connection to God's grace for you translate into your hope for God's grace for other sinners? Those things should be connected. God is still exclusive. His grace only comes to us in Christ. If you want to know the one true God, you want to have a saving relationship with him, you have to come into Christ. You have to come and join his people. But that invitation is open to all kinds, even you, even your worst enemies, to all who would call Jesus Lord and wrestle with him in faith. Because Jesus has compassion on all of us. Glory be to the God of Israel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may the grace and the glory of your Son be exalted in us and through us for the life of the world. We pray that you would assure us of your compassionate care for us and not just for us, but for other sinners who are just like us. Fill us with the spirit of your son, not just for the sake of our relationship with you, but so that all kinds of people would know you as father through faith in Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. So in the Lord of the Rings, I'll save this illustration, you know, out out of the sermon, save it for the table. (laughs) In the Lord of the Rings, uh, there is a thing called Lembus bread. And it is this elvish, they call it whey bread, which means it's like journey bread. It's what you take along with you. Uh, It's life bread. Uh, Legolas, who is the the fancy elf prince um, who shoots arrows. (laughs) Legolas says about Lembus bread, one small bite is enough to fill the stomach of a grown man. Isn't that enchanting, right? You can imagine this, this, uh, this little bit of bread, this little crumb that fills you up for your journey. Such are the crumbs from the Lord's table. Not because the bread magically expands in your stomach and fills you up so that you don't have to eat lunch in an hour, um, uh, but because the bread represents the life of Jesus Christ. The relationship of the Son to the Father. So as you eat this bread and as you drink this cup, by faith, through the Holy Spirit, the body and blood of Jesus fills you up. The life of Christ fills you up and sustains you for your journey through this life and the next. His life with God becomes your life with God. You can believe that. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, we lift our hearts and our minds to heaven where Jesus is seated at your right hand. As your son prayed in this world, so we also pray to you as our father. 
as your son walked with you, so we also now walk with you and not apart from you. As your son suffered and entrusted himself to you, so we also suffer with faith. As your son was raised and exalted and glorified, so we also will be raised and exalted and glorified in your presence. As your son lives with you forever in the glory of the Holy Spirit, so we also live with you never to be parted. Your son said, it is finished. He has guaranteed all of these things to us with his life given for us. And you have confirmed it to us in his resurrection. So we pray that you would feed us with the crumbs from your table. Feed us with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you.